This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Charayu Wake, partner from Seed Plus, and in the second part of our conversation, we discuss why the Broadcom and Qualcomm deal fell apart and its implications to Asia-Pacific companies making acquisitions in the US. Welcome back with me, Charayu Wake, partner of Seed Plus. And since I got him here and we've discussed a lot about the mobility and the IoT landscape in our last podcast episode, in this particular podcast episode is actually something that we've been discussing for a while and we've been going back and forth. And I really appreciate, Chirayu, your thoughts on the matter because there was a lot of twists and turns. So maybe to start off the conversation, what we are talking about is the recent Broadcom and Qualcomm deal that fell apart. There's been a lot of misconceptions here, whether Broadcom was a Singapore company trying to buy a US company. They put up a bid of about $117 billion to take over Qualcomm, which is very well known for making chips and for modems and routers and then subsequently for the mobile phones as well. And there are problems between Qualcomm and Apple and Samsung. And it is a very, very interesting view. And of course, at the end, it fell apart because the Trump administration thinks that to allow Qualcomm to be sold was actually losing the most enabling technology for 5G to be gone away, potentially to Asia, potentially to the Chinese. Just get the background set. Can you provide a background to how Broadcom came to be what they are today and why have it decided to acquire Qualcomm? Yeah, so firstly, I think one has to understand that this is not Broadcom, right? This is Avago. So Avago has been around in Singapore as a Singapore HQ company for a very, very long time. And the belief of the founder was has always been that he believes in cash products. What that means is his product suites are always stuff that will sell in three months. He's not a believer in long-term R&D because the belief is if he creates the cash flow in the short term with these products, he can actually buy IP in the market. That approach, as you saw with Qualcomm. But to go back, right? So Avago decided about a couple of years ago, I don't know when, or maybe even more, to acquire Broadcom, which is based out of the valley. Broadcom's primary bread and butter was Wi-Fi and wireless, not the mobile side of the house. Though they had some game there, I think Qualcomm was significantly stronger on the mobile chipset. But on the rest of the Wi-Fi stuff and wireless stuff, Broadcom was pretty solid. But I think what increasingly started happening was Qualcomm did also had acquired a Wi-Fi company and they had also started getting into Wi-Fi. So it, it had become a slightly challenging situation for Broadcom. So Broadcom actually sold out to Avago. Avago integrated uh, a lot of the Broadcom's existing products, but killed a lot of the R&D is what I know and I understand. And then the combined entity was renamed as Broadcom. There's a lot of misconception in the market that it's actually Broadcom buying Qualcomm. Avago renamed as Broadcom after the acquisition of Broadcom by Avago. But culturally, you know, Avago is a acquisitory sort of approach to life. So having said that, therefore, the question, I guess, was when they went ahead and decided to acquire Qualcomm, they would get a lot of the mobile IP. And you know, as everyone knows, Qualcomm's majority of profits come from IP license, not from chipset sales. So it's from licensing IP that's really 90% of EBITDA margins or more. When Broadcom made the offer, the US government, I believe, and this is my belief, I don't know what the actual answer here is. The US government believed that there is no demonstrable evidence on part of Broadcom to or Avago to have nurtured a company. Uh, it's more buying IP and then, you know, 
opportunistically selling it when needed. And therefore, the fear, I believe, was that if the CEO founder who has that approach would buy Qualcomm, the risk of him selling it to the highest bidder in China was extremely high. And I don't think this has to do with anything related to, you know, where the company was from or who the founder was. The founder is an American for the last 25 years. So it has nothing to do with all that. I think it was purely, here's a guy who has built a company based on an approach. And if Qualcomm were to become part of that, you know, it would lead to sort of some IP leakage into potentially to Chinese companies that like Huawei that are looking to buy stuff and, you know, they have the cash to buy it. And therefore the government wanted to make sure it stops that. And I don't know if that's unfair given the track record of this company, but you know, something to think about for the future, right? That it's not going to be straightforward for companies to go in and buy stuff in America, especially when it comes to sort of this sort of an IP that's long term and gives a long term advantage. So, yeah, I mean, that's my view of it. What was interesting about this deal is the following top 10 the guy who is basically the CEO of Broadcom or Avago family was a Malaysian born US citizen. And he has basically found the model of that because semiconductors is getting more and more commoditized. He started to basically buy up different types of assets. It used to grow now of the origins of Avago, which came from HP because HP created this business to basically be a supplier and he started acquiring it. And then what he's actually doing is even if he buys Qualcomm, he will shut down all innovation. And his view is just buy, consolidate into a portfolio and continuously supply to the different people who are building smartphones or could be other devices. So the business model itself is sound, but you and I are in a, in a technology space. I mean, how far can this go, right? Because we, there will be always be new innovation that's coming out. I, for one, find it very difficult to accept that Qualcomm will actually allow the deal to go through from that. I don't know the nuances of that, but I'm sure the Qualcomm folks were not willing participants and there was sort of likelihood of the deal becoming a hostile takeover. But I, I don't know the details of that. I think for me, the concerning piece was the monopoly that he would have created. That monopoly would have been very dangerous to the technology world in some sense. It would have reduced choice for device makers. And I am in some sense glad that if not for the exact same reason that the government actually decided to take the right call and decided to not allow for this, this investment to go through. Maybe I should just help bridge the story. So what happened was when Tans Avago acquired Broadcom, he basically get the co-founder of Broadcom similarly to actually talk to the board of Qualcomm to try to convince them to sell the company. And actually the two people that from Qualcomm that was really against it is the son of the Qualcomm's founder and his then chairman, Paul Jacobs. And of course, the CEO, Molnikov, who was formerly the CEO and then became the CEO. And they were fighting against a board that actually wants to sell it off. And I think the interesting thing is that somebody filed a complaint to this particular US agency. The US department, CFIUS, came in and basically shut down the acquisition at the last minute. And so he got it really, really wrong. So the deal didn't get through. So where do you think the key factors of the failure of the deal came from? I think the key factors came from the, the fact that his history of his approach of being more a private equity play got in the way of his success. I don't think this is a take on a policy matter. I think this was a take on that individual's approach to life, the way he operates his company. I wouldn't read more than that at this point. He thought moving this company to US will actually buy him the deal. But I think what landed up happening was when they looked at the history of the company that Abago was, it was unfortunate, but that's what got in sort of the way of his 
deal consummating in some sense. Do you think that the boardroom dynamics from Qualcomm was also part of the reason why the deal was did, did not fall through? I mean, the other question is why didn't Intel come in to buy Qualcomm as well? That, that's the other question that no one seems to ask because it is not in their interest to lose Qualcomm to Broadcom, right? Fair enough. I think why wasn't a white knight ready to come on the table? I think you know you got to understand that this whole industry. I don't know. I mean. Is, is struggling from cash problem or margins erosion. Therefore, you know, Qualcomm board, for good or for bad, must have thought that this was an opportunity to actually take an asset that's consistently been declining margins, perhaps, you know, sell it to someone who was a willing buyer at a reasonably premium price. And they thought that, you know, they will not be able to get that price realization over the next five years or 10 years at Qualcomm. That might have driven some of their thinking, right? Which is the assets more attractive to someone for strategic reasons than it is to them in the near term. And therefore, you know, that might have driven their thinking. On Intel not buying it, I don't know if Intel had the balance sheet to buy it. That's my sense. Like that would be a leverage buyout that would have leveraged buyout in a margin erosion eroding industry is we've seen that in retail. You know what happens, right? So if you're not able to make the money, you, you start to go bust. I think that's what happened, but I could be wrong. This is all from the outside. Yeah. I mean, and also the other problem was that Qualcomm was also locked in a legal fight with Apple over the chip royalties and has been involved in a 39 billion takeover of NXP. They are betting that if they acquire NXP and then they get, they can use the 5G to actually allow them to raise their stock price. So, I mean, these are calculations that they also got into the way when this Broadcom sort of hostile takeover came in, right? So it makes the deal very difficult to execute. Since we are in Asia, the implications of the Broadcom and Qualcomm deal are also felt in the other field Asia acquisitions by other field acquisitions by Asian companies in the US. I mean, the most well-known one is N Financial's failure to acquire MoneyGram as well. And um, there was a point in time SoftBank's Sprint tried to acquire T-Mobile, but now it's the other way around. What is interesting is you have seen Hock Tan from Broadcom have a picture with Donald Trump. You have Jack Ma also have a picture with Donald Trump and both acquisitions fail. Does that mean that it's going to be increasingly difficult for Asian companies to consolidate the technology market by buying US companies? No, I think that's too broad a statement. I think it's really case by case. And I don't know if one can read into that too much right now. I mean, there are some as industries where consolidation actually makes sense. But there are some industries where, you know, it touches the financial systems or it touches some sort of a security system or deeply sort of technical IP that's critical to future infrastructure. There would be pushback on that given, given where the existing US administration sits on some of these matters. It's more perception than reality. I'm sure that if companies in, in the US are looking for uh, acquirers, I think f- from non-mainland China, very specifically, I don't know if that's going to be too much of a problem. I think China, I would call out, is an exception in every way. And uh, companies out of China will have challenges because, you know, the quid pro quo doesn't work. The industry will, in the US, is quite, you know, independent and strong. And it will fight back and say, look, if we can't sell our assets or attract investors for assets that, you know, clearly locally we're not able to find money for, but externally people want to get their hands on. You know, A, it's not competitive because clearly here's a company that could have survived, but you'll end up killing it. B, when companies go abroad to acquire in those countries, they might face a backlash. So I I don't know if it's something that's sustainable. I think it's, it's a point in time and I think China is an exception because the U.S. is rightly concerned about 
the obvious unstated backdoors that some of these companies have to the government and to the data that they collect. So that fear is well sort of entrenched in reality in some sense. So, you know, I would say that uh, that's possibly why the MoneyGram deal also had its challenges as to where does the data reside and who's going to take control of it and some assurances around that. I did a check on the Asian billionaires who have pictures with Donald Trump and only one person managed to survive and that is Masayoshi-san with SoftBank, they recently acquired Fortress. But the acquisition of Fortress, which is a second tier investment bank for the Vision Fund, was very quiet and there was actually no resistance towards it. And that's because they're not acquiring something like a Goldman Sachs or a Morgan Stanley. If they were just acquire something like a second tier boutique investment bank, I don't think the US government had that much of a problem. And I thought that, that was very skillful of them to think to be very delicate about the relationships that US is not having with the rest of the world, particularly with Asia. Yeah, I think that I don't know if that's uh, likely to, you know, we'll, we'll see. I think lots of things happening, but, you know, I, I remain an optimist. I think the US especially has, uh, you know, has a way to sort of temper its uh, actions over the long term. We we live in challenging times, but in closing, so Troy, many thanks for coming on the show. I would like to ask you two questions. Uh, the first one is, can you recommend a book, movie, podcast, or anything that recently made an impact to your work and personal life? I would uh, say it's a book that I that I picked up on accident and I landed up being very impressed by it. It's called The End of Average. I don't remember the author, I should, but it basically talks about a world that was created by this phenomenon of working around averages. It started in the 18, early 19th century, has, has impacted every single field, including social sciences and, and workplace and education. So I would I would highly recommend that book. And how do my audience find you? So I'm not particularly a Twitter uh, person, but they can write to me at chirayu at seedplus.com. I think that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. I try to respond to every email that I get. Okay. And of course, you have your LinkedIn as well, right? <laughs> I will put a link to that. Yeah, you can. That takes a little longer for me to... <laughs> with all the bots hanging around today, I, I get uh, a bot every week asking me to help them with an ICO. So I don't know what to make of it on LinkedIn. <laughs> okay. You can find me at Bernard Leung or at BernardLeung.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast and also Google Play in the US market. Tweet to me and of course, give me your valuable feedback. So once again, Charayu, thank you for coming on the show and we look forward to speak again. Thanks, Bernard. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.